0: So we've been studying, remember, Hebrews chapter 8. In the last session, we were talking about how the translators added the word covenant to verse 7. Remember, that word is not in the original Greek manuscript, but instead it was added during translation. And many times when we see added words in the King James Bible, they actually can be very helpful because they can help you understand what the verse means because sometimes you'll have sentences in the Greek or in the Hebrew that make more sense in that language than when you translate it exactly into English, it doesn't make as much sense. So sometimes that th- those added words do help um, in, in that translation. However, this particular addition has quite the opposite effect for us, where what it actually does is it assumes an interpretation that violates the context in which Paul has been discussing not a first and second priesthood, but a first and second, I'm sorry, not a first and second covenant, but a first and second priesthood. In addition, this interpretation assumes only two covenants, while we just spend a bunch of time dealing with how Scripture clearly teaches about seven covenants, not two. And finally, that interpretation applies the Mosaic Covenant as faults, even though we know that God does not make mistakes. So for all these reasons, we determined that the word covenant does not belong in verse 7. Instead, the context, what Paul's been talking about in context, is that the first and second ministry are what belongs there. It's, it's, he's talking about a first and second ministry, a first and second priesthood. It's not a first and second covenant. And we're going to see actually more evidence, even if that's possible, for why that is in verse 8. So let's go ahead and let's read verse 8. It says, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So here, Right away, I'm gonna put this verse on the screen again, we see yet another reason why it makes more sense to read verse seven as comparing ministries and not covenants. It says, for finding fault with what? With them. That's very interesting because what I want you to notice is that whatever he's talking about here that he's found fault with, and he uses that word finding fault yet again, so whatever this is that he's finding fault with is not an it, it's a them. It's not a singular item like the New Covenant. It's a plural group of something, a them. right? If Paul was trying to say, for finding f- fault with the covenant, he would have said, for finding fault with it. But instead, what does he say? He says, for finding fault with them. If Paul was talking about a covenant, he would have used the word it, not the word them, because the word covenant isn't plural. It's singular. Remember, Paul has been talking about Two priesthoods. And now he talks about how he's finding fault with them. Who is them? Well, that would be the priesthood. What were the faults with those? We talked about this earlier. What was the fault with the priesthood? Well, Paul's already answered that question for us in chapter seven, when he's, when he says that for one thing, they were sinful, right? And since we know they were sinful, They could never be the institution through which sins be paid for and forgiven. And we're going to go into that more in a few minutes here. But what Paul is saying is that because of the imperfections in the first earthly priesthood, what Paul is saying is that God added yet another covenant on top of the five that he's already laid out. He adds another covenant that would be mediated by a priesthood that could bring final, Ultimate forgiveness of sins. And to explain this concept, he's going to go ahead and quote a passage from Jeremiah 31. Read with me Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8-12. through 12. It says, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, and I will write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities, while I remember no more. Again, this is a quotation, as we said, from Jeremiah 31. So whenever we see a quotation, I think it makes sense to go ahead and read the quotation in the original. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, we're gonna end up picking up in verse 31. Jeremiah 31 in verse 31. This is the old, primary Old Testament passage that Paul's quoting here that deals with the New Covenant. It's very important to understand the context. Of what is the New Covenant? What, does, what is Paul trying to get at when he quotes Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31 in verse 31. So when I read this passage, I tend to make some mistakes. Okay, so that's why I have you guys here today to let me know where I I go wrong, because I tend to kind of revert back to my old understanding of this passage. And I'll accidentally read like words into this passage that that doesn't actually say. So let me know if I if I make any mistakes here. And uh, so just follow along with me and, and help me out after I'm done. Let me know if I made any mistakes. So Jeremiah 31, verse 31, it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the Gentiles and the church, not according to the covenant that I made with Israel in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with you. After those days, saith the Lord, I will take my law and make it vanish away, since it was faulty anyways, and I will be their God, and the Gentiles and the church shall be my new people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. How did I do, guys? Did I get that about right or no? Did I make any mistakes? I made some mistakes there. So let's let's go back, and obviously I'm doing that to make a point, because I want you to notice what it does not say and what it does say. So let's go back and let's look at verse 31 and see where I went wrong there. Jeremiah 31 verse 31 says, In reality, behold the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with who? the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So here we see part of the background of this covenant is that is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So it turns out that when you go to any agreement, legally binding covenant, anything of that sort, a very important first step for understanding it is understanding who it's with. So here we have God talking and he says that he's making a covenant with a specific group or a couple of specific groups of people. He says it's going to be with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So those two, those two groups, the house of Israel, is the name in scripture that scripture uses to refer to the ten northern tribes of Israel, or the northern kingdom, as, as we typically refer to it. And the house of Judah is a term that's used in scripture to refer to the two southern tribes. The, the southern kingdom, many people called the, it, the, uh, included the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. So, and, and I'm not gonna take the time to prove that out today, but if you read through 1st and 2nd Kings, read through 1st or 2nd Chronicles, read through, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it's pretty clear that these are two separate groups of people that God talks about, and that they're referring to two separate groups, and that's who it's referring to. So, was very clear from this passage is that if you're not part of one of these two groups, then you're not a party of this agreement. You're not part of this covenant that God talks about Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews chapter 8. When God makes a specific promise, I want you to understand, brethren, when God makes a specific promise to a group of people, and it's a specific promise to a specific group of people, when we see that promise fulfilled, he's going to fulfill that promise to that specific group of people in that specific way he said he would fulfill it. I mean, that's, that should be pretty straightforward, but that's the reality, and, and, and that's, it's just like And God promises you and me that when we repent and turn to him and believe on the name of his son, that he is going to grant us everlasting life. We have that promise, right? God, we can rely on that promise and know that later on, God's not going to say, well, okay, well, I know I said eternal life, but actually... Actually, what I meant was maybe something a little different. Maybe it would be long life, or, or maybe the life would you know, would go for a while, but maybe it's not going to be eternal. And, and we know for sure he's not going to come to us later on and be like, oh, you know, I know I said the promise was with you, but unfortunately I'm going to change that slightly, and now it's going to be with a different group of people, so hopefully all are okay with that. No, we can rely on God's promises that when God says that he's going to make a promise with you, or he's going to make a promise with the house of Israel, or with the house of Judah, or any specific group of people, that promise is meant for them and for them alone. He, that, God's not going to change the parties to his covenants and he's not going to change the text of his covenants. Those, what he says is what he's going to do exactly. Now although we don't have time today to study this out properly, I believe that just as has always been the case since Israel began, those who want to associate with God of Israel are grafted into Israel and are part of Israel from then on. And this, of course, has been the way it's worked, and you read the Old Testament, it's very clear that it's always been the case that when there was a Gentile, or a stranger as often referenced as, who wanted to be part of Israel, who wanted to identify with the God of Israel, who wanted to identify with the covenants of this God of Israel, they would become part of Israel. You have examples of, for example, Ruth, you have the example of Rahab, and those two people were Gentiles, those were heathen, Peoples that were not in any way descendants of Abraham in the flesh, however, they became as if they were Abraham's children. They became part of Israel as far as God was concerned. They became part of the nation because of their desire to identify with him. And that's the way it's always been and nothing has changed when we get to the new covenant either. As Paul explains in Romans 11, he says that those that we as Gentiles are grafted in to the tree of Israel. But if you're here today and you believe that the church replaces Israel and that Israel goes away and now the church is what receives the promises of God, this statement here should be very confusing to you in Jeremiah 31 verse 31 because it doesn't say it's going to be made with the church, it's going to be made with Israel. So if you don't believe you're part of Israel, that should be very confusing to you. And I, I would hope that it would cause you to maybe step back and start to reevaluate your position on the, on the way scripture views the relationship between Gentiles and Israel. However, we don't have time to cover this in depth today, but if you'd like to for more, have more information on this, you can of course go read Romans 11. As um, that gives a, Paul explains with a very interesting metaphor there how um, the relationship works between Gentile believers and Israel, is, um, Israelite believers. But for now, we're gonna go ahead and move on to verse 32, Jeremiah 31, verse 32. It says, <clears throat> not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which by my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. So in other words, what is God saying here? He says this new covenant is going to be separate, or at least it's going to be some extent different from the Mosaic Covenant. God says it's not according to the covenant I made with the children of Israel when I took them out of Egypt. So it's gonna be slightly different than the Mosaic Covenant, God says. In addition, we're given a clue as to what it is that's different. God says which covenant they break, although I was in husband, unto them. So here we have this metaphor of a marriage between God and Israel. And this metaphor, in fact, is very common throughout scripture. I mean, there's no surprise that we see it here, but unfortunately, this metaphor is actually very much misunderstood or possibly even ignored a lot of times in mainstream Christianity. So for that reason, because of its direct um, uh, connection to this covenant that we're going to be dealing with today, I think it's, it's, Um, necessitates that we take a a brief second to go ahead here and um, explore its significance in scripture because God has actually already used this exact metaphor of a marriage between himself and Israel earlier in Jeremiah. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 3 we're going to talk about this marriage metaphor between God and Israel. This is very important context for understanding this and unfortunately it is very much ignored by much in mainstream Christianity today. Jeremiah chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 6. And says, The Lord said also unto me, In the days of Josiah the king, hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel have done? So I want you to notice he's talking about Israel here. This is distinct from Judah. It says, She has gone up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said, After she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me. But she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw. When for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel hath committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. So I want you to notice here that there's kind of a distinction between Judah and Israel as, as being two separate sisters. And, and there's a distinction here. And, and and I want you to notice that. How Scripture, and especially here in Jeremiah, treats the the, the term Israel or the house of Israel distinctly from the term the house of Judah. But in other words, what God is saying here is that the house of Israel, who was betrothed to God, was committing adultery against him. They had broke the marriage vows, as we had seen back in Leviticus 26. They were refusing to serve God and breaking the Torah, because that's what it means to not serve God. Serving God means keeping the Torah. So they had refused to serve God and went and broke the Torah instead. Instead, went and served other gods and used their time and their energy to serve something that was different than God. And due to this adultery, God says he divorced the northern kingdom. He divorced the house of Israel. And just as we were reading back in Leviticus 26, I told you to put it in your back pocket, you can pull it out now. God promised his people that if they break his covenant and refuse to repent, what is he going to do? He says, I'm going to scatter you among the nations. And this is exactly, in fact, what we see happen. For example, I'll quote from Hosea chapter 1 and verse 6. God says in response to their sins, he says, in in dealing with the house of Israel, he says, I will no longer have mercy upon the house of Israel. He says, I will utterly take them away. And this is referring to that scattering that he promised would happen to them if they broke his covenant. Today, the house of Israel has indeed been taken away and they've been scattered among the heathen and they've lost their identity because today nobody knows where the house of Israel went or who they are or who actually is a descendant of Israel. Many today, both in Jewish circles and many in Christian circles as well today, believe that this northern house of Israel, northern kingdom, this house of Israel has been gone away completely. It's vanished. It's disappeared and it will never return. However, as we come back to Jeremiah 31 here, what I just want you to see is it's very interesting that God says he's making a new covenant with not only the house of Judah, but also with this missing house of Israel as well. In other words, what God's saying is that this house of Israel has a future. And God says that this new covenant will be one that is kept by both sides. And we're going to see that in this next verse or these next verses here in Jeremiah 31. Let's pick it up in verse 33. It says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So notice, first of all, here we have this focus, interestingly, on who? The house of Israel. Israel. And earlier, of course, it said the house of Judah as well, but here he reiterates only the house of Israel. So it's very interesting. This is kind of the focus that he's dealing with here. And remember, that is the house that God said he divorced for breaking his law. But here in Jeremiah, what does God say about that law that they were just divorced for breaking? He says he will write his law on their hearts. Let me ask you a question. What was the law in Jeremiah's time? If you were in the house of Israel back in that day, and you heard Jeremiah tell you, he says, I'm going to write the law on your hearts, what would he be referring to? What would he be referring to? What is that law? What, what is the first thing that would come to mind? In fact, the only thing that would come to mind. What would he be talking about the, the law? He'd be talking about the law of Moses. He'd be talking about The Torah. In fact, that is the word behind this, the word behind, the word behind law here is Torah. So what God is saying is he is going to write his Torah on the hearts of his people. And in fact, that's not a new concept in any way. It should be no surprise in any way. In fact, we say the Shema here every Sabbath, and what are some of the words in, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, which is the Shema? He says, "And these words, which I command thee this day, the Torah, he says, they shall be in thine heart. So it's no surprise here that God says, I'm going to write the law on your hearts. However, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, God's law is written in the New Covenant and in the New Testament on believers' hearts in a new way, as we see as we read the New Testament. So turn with me, for example, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to see how the law of God is written in a new way on man's heart in the New Covenant. Those who covenant with God in the New Covenant and join with the Messianic covenant have God's law written on their hearts in a new way. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and and we're going to pick it up in verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 13, it says, Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. So what we have here is this concept of this Holy Spirit, which we know elsewhere in the New Testament, we are taught that the Holy Spirit dwells within believers. It dwells within our hearts. We have this idea of the Holy Spirit teaching believers of spiritual things and helping us to understand things that are spiritually discerned. And we know from elsewhere, of course, in the New Testament as well, and other teachings by Paul, that the Holy Spirit he's referring to here are received by believers in Yeshua. It's not just anyone. It's not just someone necessarily who's a spiritual descendant, or I'm sorry, a physical descendant of um, Israel or Abraham, but those who receive the Holy Spirit are those who believe in Yeshua, who want to covenant together with him. So it is those who repent and believe the gospel that this promise applies to. So I have a question for you today. Why is it, why is it that God wants to write the law of God on believers hearts? You say God writes the law on believers hearts, so why is that? Is it maybe, maybe God is writing on your heart for informational purposes. You're like, hey, I've got the law in my heart, great, right? Is that why? Or maybe, maybe perhaps the reason that God's writing the law of God on their hearts is so that they will do it, so that they know what they're supposed to be doing. And I think the answer is very clear here, and that, is, and that is why it is that God is writing his law on believers' hearts so that they will do it. But in case you are not convinced, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Here we have actually another passage that very clearly is dealing with this new covenant and actually clarifies why it is that God is going to write his Torah on the hearts of believers during the new covenant. Very clear the reason. Why is it that God wants to write his law on the, on the hearts of believers? Is it so for just for informational purposes, is there, or is it so they will do it? Ezekiel 36 and verse 22 says, Therefore, saying to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which is profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, which shall be sanctified in your eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. So we can see once again God is talking to the house of Israel, and he's promising them that there is coming a day when he will begin to regather them from among the heathen. In addition, God says, he says he's going to cleanse them from all their filthiness. What does it mean to cleanse someone from their filthiness? The filthiness would be their sins. So if he's going to cleanse them from their filthiness, what that means is he's going to forgive their iniquities. This is another way of saying that. And we saw in Jeremiah 31, that is the exact same thing that's prophesied to happen in the New Covenant. And that's when we, so we know that that's when that happens. So what I want you to notice is what he says next. Verse 26 says, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. So what is God talking about here? Well, now again, he's talking about the heart. He's talking about a change that's going to occur in the heart. And that sounds, again, very similar to what Jeremiah was talking about with this change that happens in the heart during the New Covenant. But what does Ezekiel say that this change entails? It says in verse 27, I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. So what happens? God's very clear here through Ezekiel, that he's going to cause them to what? He's going to cause them to walk in his statutes. He's going to cause them to keep his judgments. And he says he's going to cause them to do them. So as we come back to Jeremiah 31 here, it's very clear that those in the New Testament or in the new covenant I should say, will be keeping his statutes and his judgments. They're going to be keeping his Torah. That is the reason they are written on man's heart. So as we come back to Jeremiah 31 here, when the house of Israel repents and turns back to God, Jehovah says that the law will be written on their hearts, and it says God will accept them to be his people once again. So you see here in verse 33 it says, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What a promise that is. And it's so significant in the context of what we've been j- just been dealing with. Because God says that the new covenant, when the house of Israel has the law of God written in their hearts, what's going to happen? It says God will again take them to be his people. This people, the house of Israel, who has said he has divorced and said we're not his people, God said he's going to again take them to be his people. And this is similar language to what we saw in the Mosaic Covenant where God says, I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I'm going to make you my people. He says here, I'm going to make you my people once again. How is that possible? How is it possible that God could take them for his people once again? So in part, one of the reasons that God can take them to be his people is because, as we just saw, they're no longer going to be breaking his Torah. So remember, that's the reason God divorced them in the first place. He's like, you guys aren't keeping my Torah, you're not serving me anymore, so away you go. You broke the covenant, you broke the marriage vows, you're committing adultery and not serving me, so therefore I'm going to divorce you. But God says here that he's going to write the Torah on their heart, and we learn from Ezekiel that means they're going to do it. So that's one of the reasons God can accept them to be his people, once again, is because they're going to be keeping Torah again. But another reason is also because their past sins are going to be forgiven, as we're going to see in this next verse. Jeremiah 31 verse 34 says, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God says that when the house of Israel turns again to Jehovah, that they will once again be as people, and that they will all, what does it say there? Know the Lord, they're all gonna know Jehovah. This is of course another major difference from the Mosaic Covenant, why do I say that? Because if you look back at God's covenant with Moses, did everyone in under the Mosaic Covenant that God made a covenant with there, did they, did they all know the Lord? Did they have all a personal relationship with him? As we go through the history of Israel, God made a covenant with the nation, but all those people did not know the Lord. All Israel at that point did not know the Lord. In fact, by the time we get to the point it, at the end of 2 Kings, where God's this or I suppose it might be earlier than that, where God actually divorces the Northern Kingdom, it's pretty clear that almost none of them apparently had a very direct relationship with God. And that's what caused him to, to divorce them in the first place. But here we have something totally different. This statement that Israel will know God is, is very different than what we see in the, in the, the uh, Mosaic Covenant. And it's possible for a couple reasons. So you say, how is it possible that all Israel is going to know God in the future? Well, I think it's possible for a couple reasons, and, and work with me here for a second. Um, Turn with me to Romans chapter 11, because throughout scripture, one of the reasons why I, think, why I believe this is possible is because throughout scripture, beginning of course in Leviticus 26 that we were reading earlier, and all the way through even into the New Testament, and we're going to see here in Romans 11 in fact, that there is coming a day when both houses of Israel and Judah are going to awaken. They're going to realize who they are, they're going to realize they were sinning, as, as it says in Leviticus, that they are going to acknowledge the punishment that I have laid out for them, they're going to repent, and they're going to turn back to God. It's very clear throughout Scripture that they are going to realize that they're sinners, they're going to realize that, they're, that they've sinned against the Lord, and that they're, that they're scattered by his judgment, they're going to realize why that is, and they're going to realize, you know what, we need to turn back to to God. They're going to acknowledge their sin, repent, and turn to God. And as it says here in Romans 11, look with me at verse 25. It says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit. He's talking to the Gentiles here. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so, he says, all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer who's that Messiah, and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So here we have Paul, and what he's doing is he's bringing together some of the Old Testament scriptures, and he's making very clear this concept that all Israel is going to be saved. It's very interesting, if you read there, back in the verse it says, "Lest lest you should be wise in your own conceits, the blindness in part has happened to Israel when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. So in other words, Israel is gonna be saved after this concept of the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is very interesting because when you look at the original languages, this is actually, this this, uh, phrase, fullness of the Gentiles, connects back to the promise we have in Genesis where um, Jacob blesses his son Ephraim with this exact same phrase. He says, unto you shall the fullness of the Gentiles or the gathering of the peoples or the gathering of the nations, the gathering of the Goyim are going to be. So that's when this is going to happen. The Gentiles are going to begin coming in and at that point all Israel shall be saved. It's interesting that it says there that God is going to turn ungodliness away from Jacob. The Messiah is going to do that. Well it's very interesting because it's very clear that this is not talking about some resurrection in the future where God's going to take believers from the past and resurrect them. No he's talking about talking about Israelites who are rebellious and are ungodly, and it says God's going to turn their ungodliness away, and that is what's going to cause all Israel to be saved. Now I realize here that what I'm doing is I'm kind of mixing, if you look at that verse, I'm mixing up the concept of a little bit of spiritual and physical salvation. So what this verse in Romans 11 is dealing with primarily is this concept of physical salvation, where this deliverer is going to come, and he's going to rescue his people physically, and redeem his people physically. He's going to come back to earth and save them. But, it's important to recognize as well that that physical salvation comes only to those who are spiritually saved first and the rest are going to have what happen? They're going to be judged and that's what brings me kind of the second reason this is possible that and why all Israel can know God is because at the time Yeshua returns to deliver his people and save his people as it says in Romans 11, the Israel that exists at that time will be a true Israel. Paul explains this concept actually a lot more in Romans chapter 9. If You get a chance later read that chapter because it's it's very, very interesting and dealing again with the relationship between who true Israel is and it kind of feeds into this idea of who the Gentiles are in relation to them. But Paul says in, in verse 6 of Romans chapter 9, it says, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. So the true Israel is not those who are of Israel in in the idea that they're going to be physical descendants of Israel, so the true Israel is not those who are of Israel physically, but the true Israel, as he explains in the next verses in Romans chapter nine, are those who are children of the promise. He says, just like Isaac was the child of the promise, where God promised Abraham that they would have a seed, and Isaac was the the fulfillment of that promise, as opposed to Ishmael, who was the, the fulfillment through unbelief, where they acted in unbelief of God's promises and said, we need to kind of take this into our own hands and create a seed. No, God says that the true Israel comes through those, like Isaac, who are children of the promise and those who want to enter into the promise of God. Those are the true Israel. And that's, what, that's very interesting what Paul says there. In other words, the true Israelites are not those who are of Israel or of his physical descendants, but instead, the true Israel are those who identify with God's promises. And I wish I could spend a lot more time on this, but for now what I want you to understand is a couple things. Jeremiah is saying here that there's coming a day when all Israel will know Jehovah. That is the promise. I believe that's possible for a couple reasons. First of all, because Israel will awaken and will turn back to God and therefore will know Him. And secondly, true Israel will be separated from those who do not want to identify with God's promises and the rest will be judged. So when they do repent and turn and awaken as part of this new covenant, what God says is that He's going to forgive their iniquities. And he's going to remember their sins no more. Look at verse 34 one more time. It says, For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So here we have this additional promise God will remember their sin no more. In other words, with the new covenant would come true, final, ultimate forgiveness of sins. And I think, and this is what I want you to focus on, guys, because this is the most important part of this covenant, I believe. I want you to focus on this idea of sins being forever forgiven, because without it, without it, brethren, none of the rest of the promises can come to pass. God's not going to take for his people, as we learn in the New Testament, those who are unforgiven and wallowing in their sins. When you're a sinner, what happens? God divorces you. Right? When you are wallowing in your sins and unrepentant, God divorces you. That's what happens. But when your sins are forgiven, that's when God can take you for his people. God's not going to give his Holy Spirit, as we learn in the New Testament, to write his laws in believers' hearts unless you've been forgiven of your sins and you've entered into covenant with his son, Yeshua. And again, how do you expect to have a true relationship with the Lord unless you have first secured his forgiveness. That's the way you have a true relationship. So I think this forgiveness of sins through the Messiah has to be the most important part of this covenant. It's the cornerstone on which all the rest of the promises of the new covenant are built upon. This true forgiveness as we were reading in Hebrews and Paul elaborates on later on, comes through the perfect sacrifice of Yeshua. Yeshua's sacrifice does not have to be offered over and over again, like the earthly priest sacrifices did. On the contrary, Yeshua's sacrifice is final. Yeshua's sacrifice is a one-time occurrence, and is made in the true heavenly tabernacle. So we went through a ton of information there, and you're probably, your head is swimming a little bit, and that's why I want you to focus on what I'm gonna put up on the slide here next, which as we go ahead and review and summarize, this is the information I want you to remember. According to Jeremiah 31, how new is the new covenant truly? So let's go ahead and compare them. So I've got a table going here. We've got the Mosaic covenant in one column. we got the Messianic covenant in one column. And we're going to ask the question, go, going down the rows here. So it says, was the first covenant made with Israel? Well, the Mosaic covenant, of course, we know it was made with Israel. And so as we read is the Messianic Covenant. So is that new? Well, nothing's new here. Everything is exactly the same as before, although now we have this, I suppose, a breakout between the House of Israel and the House of Judah, but it's still with the same group of people. So we have nothing really new here. Number two, does the Mosaic Covenant versus the Messianic Covenant contain the Torah? Well, both the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant both contain the Torah we learned, right? So again, there's nothing new as far as the Torah goes here. Both, are expected, both covenants you're expected to follow the Torah within them, right? Number three, is the Torah written on our hearts in the New Covenant versus the Mosaic Covenant? Well, remember in the Mosaic Covenant, as we say every Sabbath in the Shema, we are supposed to indeed write God's law on our hearts. They're supposed to be in our hearts and in the forefront of our minds all the time. However, we learned in the New Covenant, the law of God and spiritual things are written on our hearts in a new way. So we are, so in in other words, we kind of have this kind of, this promise kind of works in the Mosaic Covenant, and there's a kind of a foreshadowing of it, but we see in the Messianic Covenant, we see an even better version of how this, the the law of God is written on on our hearts. God actually goes ahead and writes it in our hearts instead of us being expected to put it on our own hearts, if you will. So number four, will Israel be Jehovah's people. Will Israel be Jehovah's people? And will Jehovah be their God? Well, in the Mosaic covenant, of course, we learn that yes, until the house of Israel broke away and were divorced, Israel was God's people, right? But that was the covenant. I will take you for my people if you keep my covenant, if you follow my Torah. But now in the Messianic covenant, the New Covenant, God says again that now I'm going to take them back again. They are going to be my people. Once again, so we have this even better version, this better promise, if you will, in the Messianic covenant. All right, and all Israel will be saved, that's the second to last thing there. Are all Israel saved? Will they all know the Lord? Well, in the Mosaic covenant, we learned that no. All of Israel did not know the Lord, however, and I'm not saying here, of course, that um, there's no way for them to be saved or have a personal relationship with the Lord, of course, they were able to. They were able to look for, in fact, the new covenant that was coming and, and at the point when, when they will be able to know God. And, and, and that was kind of the foundation there that existed. But remember, in the new covenant, all Israel will know the Lord. Because, this is possible, of course, because they're prophesied to awaken and that true Israel will be separated from those who do not want to identify with God and his covenants. And finally, we ask the question, are sins forgiven in the Mosaic covenant versus the Messianic covenant? You look at the X there, and you're like, whoa. Uh, I think they did receive forgiveness in the Old, in the old Testament under the Old um, Covenant with Moses there. Of course they did. But why? Because they were looking forward to the coming Messianic Covenant. There was a time coming in the future when their sins would be ultimately forgiven, and that was in the New Covenant. And those who believed on that and looked forward to that and expected that to come do have, in a sense, forgiveness of their sins. But the true forgiveness comes through Yeshua in the Messianic Covenant. And that is when sins are truly forever forgiven. So there you have it. There's a crash course on the New Covenant as far as you, now you kind of know what it means. You know what the promises are. You know the background, who it's for. However, what we've been dealing with here is Hebrews chapter 8. So the question still remains, what is it that Paul is arguing for in Hebrews chapter 8? Why, he, why is Paul quoting Jeremiah 31 at all in the first place. What is his point here? What's the point he's trying to make? Let's go ahead and turn back to Hebrews chapter 8 here. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 8. What is Paul talking about? What is Paul's point when he's talking about this new covenant? Why does he go ahead and and quote Jeremiah in the first place? Well, remember, what has Paul been talking about in the context? Paul has been contrasting, remember, the Levitical priesthood, with Yeshua's priesthood. I've said this a hundred times now, so hopefully you're starting to remember (laughs) that that is what Paul's been talking about in the context. I had this graphic on the screen before. What Paul's been talking about is how the Levitical priesthood is not superior to the Messianic priesthood. Instead, the Messianic priesthood is better. It's separate and better and more, and superior to the Levitical priesthood. And we concluded earlier that based on context that what Paul's been talking about is the inherent faults that come with the reality of human priests. He's talking about their sinfulness, right? So if you look at verse seven, for example, and leading into verse eight, there's, it says, for if that first, and we understood ministry, had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, the priests, of course, not a covenant, because that doesn't make any sense, he saith, so who is the true them that he's talking about? Well, it's the priesthood. So remember, he's talking about false." So, what faults was he talking about? We're going to go over this again here, so hopefully this starts to stick in your mind. Remember, in chapter 7, he's been talking about what? The human priest's sinfulness, right? So I'm going to start laying out the logic here on the screen, so hopefully you can help start to follow Paul's logic. So first of all, he lays out this idea that Levite priests were sinful, and they they contained this sinful nature, because they were humans. And because the Levite priests were sinful, they had to repeatedly offer sacrifices. No single sacrifice covered all the sins of a person or achieved ultimate, final forgiveness. Right? So that's the next point. A sinful priesthood can never bring that final, ultimate forgiveness. However, now what has Paul done? Now he's gone back to Jeremiah 31, and he's quoted for us a prophecy that predicts, among other things, but the foundation for that, all the promises that he lays out, as we talked about was that God would no longer remember their sins. We have this idea of forever forgiveness. And this is in contrast to what he's been saying earlier, that a sinful priesthood could never bring this ultimate forgiveness. So we have all all this group of of points here. We've got this idea of the Levite priesthood being sinful. We have the idea of a sinful priesthood that can never bring ultimate forgiveness. And also we have this idea that there's going to be ultimate forgiveness coming, so what does that lead us to? How is that possible? How can all these things be true at the same time? Well, the answer that comes to us is Yeshua, a new priesthood is needed. We can't have the, Lev- the Levite priests fulfilling the promises of this new better pro- covenant because they weren't capable of doing it, because they were sinful. Because Yeshua's priesthood is not plagued by the faults that are inherent in this sinful human condition that the priest had, it is through Yeshua and the new covenant that Yeshua mediates that true ultimate forgiveness of sins can come. Yeshua's sinfulness or I'm sorry, sinlessness, allows him to offer the perfect offering that creates the conditions for the complete forgiveness of sins. Turn with me a page over there in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9, this next chapter that Paul's talking about. And we're going to see how he elaborates on this point in Hebrews chapter 9 and kind of uh, validates what I just said. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11 it says, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come so here we can see Paul's talking again, he's still using the terminology of high priest so he hasn't even as, as we get to verse, or chapter 9 here he hasn't left this topic of comparing priesthoods, he's still talking about Yeshua as a high priest he says, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands still talking about this heavenly tabernacle not, which is to say, not of this building neither by the blood of goats and calves, which is related to the Levitical priesthood, but by his own blood he entered in once, into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us." Wow, here we have this promise of eternal redemption. How much better is that than what the earthly priesthood could ever have offered? The earthly priesthood was not capable of bringing that eternal forgiveness, that eternal redemption for our sins by offering a sacrifice once in the holy place in heaven. So now we have the understanding of what Paul's trying to say in his context, and we've begun to interpret this passage. So now that we understand what Paul's been talking about in this last um, set of verses, let's go on to verse 13, and this is probably the trickiest one. So if your brain's not fried yet, I'm gonna make sure I'm gonna completely fry it now. So focus with me if you can muster a little bit more energy. Focus on Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. It says, And that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old, is ready to vanish away. And again, another controversial verse. So I've put it up on the screen for you so you can read it very carefully. It says, And that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old, is ready to vanish away. So here again, we have this English phrase, new covenant. And mainstream Christianity, of course, as we talked about earlier, reads this verse, they interpret it, myself included in the past, to mean that it was it's that God is creating this new covenant, and the new and that God's covenant with Moses is old and thus it vanishes away. And that's where you get the idea that the new covenant replaces the old one. So the mainstream understanding of this verse is that it's that the it's the covenant with Moses that is old. In, in fact, it's almost like you insert a word there. I'm not saying this is necessarily wrong to do, because you have to kind of understand it somehow. But if we say we kind of, it's almost as if they understand it as if the word covenant was inserted there. And it says something along the lines of, "And that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first, and they interpret the, first, the word first to be covenant. So that he made the first covenant old. Now that covenant which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And on the surface, you can read that verse and be like, you know what, that makes some sense. I can understand why you'd walk away with that interpretation. But I want you to realize that there, again, is a whole bunch of problems with this interpretation. Because, the, again, they argue, that based on this verse primarily, that the law of God, the Mosaic Covenant, goes away. That it no longer is applicable to our lives in the New Covenant. That is what comes of this interpretation of this verse. However, this interpretation, again, raises a series of red flags. So, First of all, this interpretation, first of all, implies that the Torah vanishes away in the New Covenant. Of course, that's what I said the mainstream interpretation of this verse is. However, it's very interesting because we just finished quoting a passage, Paul did, that says what? that the new covenant includes God writing the Torah on man's heart, right? That's in, in verse 10 there, you can even back up, he says it, it says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. So in other words, if this interpretation is correct, this mainstream interpretation, that it's the Torah that vanishes away, and that's what Paul is talking about here, and what we're seeing here is Paul say one thing where he interprets a verse that says one thing and then two seconds later says completely the opposite. Where he says that, he quotes a verse that says the, the um, Torah is, exists during the, old, er, during the new covenant. In fact, it is written on man's heart and then two seconds later he says also it vanishes away. So this cannot be the right understanding. We have this this conflict here where it it seems that Paul is saying one thing one second and something totally different the next second. Number two, this interpretation asserts that the word first refers to the first covenant, not the first priesthood, which I believe that violates context because Paul has just been discussing not a first covenant, but a first and second ministry or first and second priesthood, not covenants in the context. Remember in verse 7 there, we understood based on the context of verse 7 that what Paul's talking about is talking about the first ministry and a second ministry. So, in order for this interpretation to work, you have to assume that in verse 7 he's talking about one thing, and then you get down to verse 13 here, and now he's talking about something totally different but using the exact same terminology. He's using the the word first to mean one thing one second, now he's using the word first to mean something different next second. And of course, as we said earlier, this first, the first covenant between man and God, again, that's not the Mosaic Covenant that Paul's been talking about here. It's the Adamic Covenant, right? It's the God's covenant with Adam. So, again, there's, there's, there's just something wrong. There's a red flag that we see with this interpretation. And lastly, this interpretation requires that the Mosaic Covenant is still in effect, in fact, in Paul's writing. And you may not see that at first, so I want you to focus on this, brethren. What is... Paul, what, why do I say that this interpretation requires that the Mosaic Covenant is actually still in effect in Paul's day? Because remember, according to the mainstream interpretation, if the New Covenant replaces the Mosaic Covenant, as, as is typically believed in mainstream Christianity, the, Mo, the, the Mosaic Covenant should have vanished away at what point? And Paul's very clear, later on at this point, when does the New Covenant start, and if it replaces the Old Covenant, when should the Old Covenant end? Well, it would be with Yeshua's death on the cross, right? When Yeshua died, Paul's clear later on that it's Yeshua's blood that ratifies that new covenant. So, mainstream um, system understands it as if the cross is the midpoint and that you have, before that, you have the old covenant and after that you have the new covenant, right? But where's Paul? Well, Paul's over here, Paul's after the cross. So if Paul's saying, so so for that understanding to be correct, then what Paul's actually saying here is that the, that the Old is actually still in effect in his day. And why do I say that? Well, let's read the verse again. It says, that which decayeth and waxeth old, whatever he's talking about, that decays and waxeth old, is what? Has already vanished away? Is that what it says? No, it says it is ready to vanish away. It says it's ready to vanish away. In other words, whatever Paul's talking about here has not yet vanished away, but is going to vanish away, it's ready to vanish away, at a future time. He's talking about something that happens in the future. So if Paul's talking about the law of God here, that would imply that at the time of Paul's writing, it's still in effect and has not yet vanished away yet, which of course that totally undermines the whole mainstream position and understanding of the whole of the New Testament, which says that the law of God was rendered obsolete by the coming of the new covenant when Yeshua died on the cross. And it would mean you can't go to Romans you can't go to Galatians or any of other Paul's other writings and argue that Paul is, is arguing against keeping the, the law then because Paul says in this verse that it's ready to vanish away. So it hasn't vanished away yet, so Paul can't possibly be arguing against it. Of course, I don't believe that... Paul is arguing against keeping the law in his other epistles either, and part of the reason for that is, of course, this verse right here that we've just been reading where God predicts that the Torah will be applicable and will exist and will be written, in fact, on man's heart during the New Covenant, so I don't believe Paul's writing against it anywhere else either. However, the point I'm trying to make here is that if the mainstream interpretation of this verse is correct, that's what I want you to walk away with today, brethren, is that if that's correct, then this verse actually undermines the, their entire system, and it doesn't work with their whole system. So now that we've seen these, these issues, let's go back and let's read this verse again more carefully. Hebrews chapter 8, and verse 13. What does it say? It says, And that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old, and that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So upon closer examination of those verse, what do we see again? What do we see as in italics? Well, the word covenant again is strangely in italics. Imagine that. Just like in verse 13. Seven. So the original verse before it was I unfortunately I hate to use the word but tampered with by the translators what it truly reads in, in the original says in that he saith anew he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and the is old is ready to vanish away. Now we know again that he can't be saying it's the law that vanishes away right because What he already just got done saying when he quoted quoted Jeremiah is that the law is still applicable. In fact, it is still written in believers' hearts in the new covenant. So the only plausible explanation here is that Paul hasn't left the the subject of priesthood. So let's go ahead and read this verse with that understanding and see if we can make that make sense. So we take away the word covenant there because it's not even in the original um, text and we go ahead and understand it as if the word first was, understand, was referring just as it, as it was in the past to a first ministry, not a first covenant. In verse 13 it says, and he saith anew, he hath made the first, we would understand possibly ministry, is old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now you might be standing there and say, you know what, hold on a second, because Paul here is actually quoting Jeremiah, which he already wrote, which we already saw in verse 8 there, where um, Jeremiah says those exact words. He says, a new covenant. That's what Jeremiah says. So, I mean, it is reasonable, and it's not exactly dishonest to add this word covenant in this verse, right? And you can understand why they might have done that, more so, perhaps, than in verse 7. And, I mean, you'd be correct in that, and this isn't necessarily a dishonest addition. However, what I do want you to see is that for some reason, Paul, in this verse, doesn't put that word in. Maybe it's, maybe it's because you say maybe it's because Paul just has bad grammar and was like, "You know what? <laughs> we don't need that word. It's a long word anyway, so maybe we'll just omit it, and hopefully they'll understand what I'm saying. Right? Is, is that why he did it? He just doesn't put that word in because you know it isn't really necessary in the first place. Or maybe he, he omitted that word intentionally, or didn't continue the quote up to that word intentionally for a reason. Now I would argue that there is a reason and argue that the reason. He doesn't add this word, is to emphasize not the new covenant. He's not necessarily trying to emphasize the word covenant, but simply he's trying to emphasize in this verse the word new. He's trying to emphasize this word new. Remember, the new covenant is new. Why? Why is the new covenant new? Is it because the law goes away? No, it's not because the law goes away, because that's the promise. In fact, that it is written on our hearts. So What's new about it is that it contains, as Paul said earlier, new promises. It's the new promises of the new covenant that makes the new covenant new. Okay? So I emphasize the word new because I think that's what Paul's trying to say there. As we just discussed, these new promises, specifically the promise of total forgiveness of sins, which we said is the cornerstone of the whole covenant, requires a new priesthood. And the new priesthood is required Why? the old one, as Paul said earlier, contains faults, right? I'm trying to repeat myself so this hopefully starts to sink in and you can make sense of this even though I'm talking extremely fast, I keep tripping over my own words, <laughs> but hopefully you'll get at least that much is that what Paul's been talking about is this new priesthood and it, the new priesthood is required because the old one was faulty. And to achieve forgiveness of sins, remember, the new priesthood has to be Perfect, meaning it cannot contain the faults of sinful humanity that were present in the, new, in the Levitical priesthood. So what I believe Paul is getting at here when he repeats the phrase, a new covenant that's added there, is he's trying to get at how the newness of the new covenant correlates to the newness of the Messianic priesthood. Messianic priesthood is new just as the new covenant is new. In other words, what he's saying is because God says the new covenant is new, and that it contains the promise of complete forgiveness of sins, that is what makes the first priesthood old. So a question for you, what would the new promises of the, the, of the new covenant, or why would the new promises of the new covenant make the old priesthood old? What, why is that the case? Well, the reason is because the first priesthood is not able to bring about the new promise of total forgiveness of sins. The new promises in the new covenant are what make the first priesthood old. Does that make sense? So thus, the first priesthood is old because it cannot perform the new promises of the new covenant. I believe that's what Paul's arguing here. Let's go ahead and recap. What is Paul trying to say? First of all, Paul cannot be saying that the old covenant vanished away under the new covenant, because he's just got done quoting a verse that says the Torah will not only exist, but it, it will be written on man's hearts in the new covenant. So thus, he must be saying there's something else that vanishes away. It's something else. It can't be the law, because he just got done quoting a verse that says the law stays, so it must be something else that vanishes away. And since we should assume, when in doubt, that Paul is continuing along the same train of thought and is not moving on to something totally different, and also that he's using terminology consistently, we should believe that that's something else he's talking about is what? That's the Levitical priesthood. That's what he's been talking about this whole time. So let's go back, let's read that verse again. It says, And that he saith anew, he hath made the first old. The first what? First priesthood. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And that he saith anew. So Paul says, When God calls Messianic covenant new, which you will recall is because of his, the new promises. So what Paul's saying here is that when God calls the new covenant new, he's making that first something old. Remember, Paul's been talking about a first and second priesthood. So it's safe to assume that what Paul's talking about here is the same thing he's been using that word first to refer to in the context. He's talking about that first priesthood. So he says the first priesthood is old because God makes the new covenant new. The new promises are not in the domain of the first priesthood. This makes the first priesthood old. And thus, Paul says, it is ready to vanish away. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So the question is, what's decaying and waxing old here? Is it the law of God? Is it God made such giant mistakes on his old covenant that... Now it's just, it's just falling apart like the test of time. It just it can't stand it because God, God made just such terrible mistakes on it. Is that what Paul's saying? No. From the context, it would be the Levitical priesthood that is decaying and waxing old. You say, well, that's kind of a harsh statement against Levitical priesthood. But I want you to remember, think about this is Paul's day. Paul was very shortly after Yeshua. And what were the priests like in Yeshua's day? Remember in the Gospels, when you read about the priests, is that generally in a positive context or a negative context? Negative. Negative context, exactly. It's in a very negative context. So it's the Levitical priesthood during Paul's day and during Yeshua's day, as we read, that is decaying, that is corrupt. And it's waxing old because it can't fulfill the promises of the new covenant and thus it's ready to vanish away. It hasn't vanished away yet in Paul's day. It's ready to vanish away and that makes perfect sense because when we go and we look at history, what does history tell us? Well in 70 AD the temple is destroyed by the Romans and the priesthood indeed vanishes away. And thus is fulfilled as was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Hosea when he says, and now will I discover her lewdness, this is talking about the house of Israel in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. I will also cause her mirth to cease, What is her mirth, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts? For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a priest, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, without a teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God. And it comes from Hosea chapter 2, 10 through 11, and chapter 3. Verse 4 through 5. Although God had promised that the the Levite priesthood would continue to last forever, and in fact it is prophesied the Levitical priesthood will return and offer sacrifices in the millennium, because of the sin of Israel, God judges his people by removing their ability to worship him properly. He takes away their mirth and all their joyful Feast and days and and all these things that are connected to that and that is his judgment upon his people. This is very similar again to the Davidic covenant where we see that although the Davidic covenant is still in effect, and we know that is we can look outside and the day and night have not ceased. That's God's promise that as long as that, that happens, you see the day and night happen, my covenant with David is still there. Although that covenant is still in effect, these covenants with Levi and his covenant with David are kind of almost, they're not active for a period of time. And this is, of course, due to God's judgment for the people's sin because they broke the Torah. Of course, that's not the case with the Torah or the Mosaic Covenant as if that were not active for a period of time because Jeremiah, again, specifically talks about the Torah and how it's still present in the New Covenant. So in conclusion... I am here to tell you today that there are ways to interpret this passage of Hebrews chapter 8 that do not require that the Bible contains faults and do not require that Paul is blatantly contradicting himself within the space of a few verses. I'm here to tell you today that we can understand this passage without being forced to ignore the passages immediate context or the clear statements throughout the rest of Scripture that relate to these topics. Paul is not saying that the New Covenant uh, makes the law of God obsolete. He's not saying that the law of liberty that David loved and talked about throughout the Psalms and, and talked about how he meditates during day and night, he's not saying that those things are obsolete and go away. That's not the point of what Paul is trying to say here. Context and basic logic preclude such an interpretation. Instead, what is new about the New Covenant is that it offers each of us, me, you, every single one of us, a way to be truly, once and for all, reconciled with God through Yeshua, the perfect high priest. When we enter into the new covenant by repenting of our sins and, and, and believe in the gospel of Yeshua, our Messiah, and thereby we become grafted in to the tree of Israel, just as Jehovah has promised, he will write his law on our hearts so we can keep it and so we can do it. And when he returns, we will all know him. He will claim us to be his people, our sins forever forgiven. And we will, he will remember our sins no more. So The question for each and every one of us today, are, are you part of the new covenant today? Are you a part of the new covenant today? Meaning, have you repented of your sins and turned in faith to Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord? If so... God has forgiven your sins. You are one of his people and he is your God. He has written his Torah on your hearts so that you can keep it and you can do it. There is no excuse for you not keeping his Torah. Yeshua said, my yoke is easy my burden is light. We should walk in the steps that Yeshua walked. And those steps are him keeping God's law perfectly. Because that is what... The new covenant is about for you and it's about for me. So each and every one of us can know God and have a perfect personal relationship with him because the new covenant writes the Torah in our hearts and we can once again serve God the way he designed us to. On the other hand, if you're not part of the new covenant, the point here is obvious. You are under the threat of God's judgment both before and after your death. You would do well to look to the perfect high priest that Paul talks about, who is able to redeem you in the perfect tabernacle in heaven. You see, God wants you to enter into covenant with him. By repenting of your sins and turning in faith to Yeshua the Messiah, the promises of the new covenant are yours. God will consent to be your God and will accept you as one of his people. And all your sins that you have committed against him will forever ultimately and finally be forgiven and he promises to write his perfect laws in your hearts so you too can be blessed by keeping them the time is now today is the day of salvation let's go ahead and close this service prayer.